It's easy for us to get caught up in what others are saying about Jesus, but we have to make up our own minds about who Jesus is. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 55th episode of Working with the Word. Today, we are moving into John chapter 7. Remember, we're in the middle of the period of controversy here. And after an intense scene of teaching and controversy in chapter 6, in chapter 7, Jesus is going to take a bit of a break from public eye. We're titling this chapter, Confusion in the Capital, because it takes place in Jerusalem during an important feast for the Jews. And when you read the chapter, it's kind of a confused mess where everybody is talking about Jesus voicing their opinions, if we wanted to put this in our day and age, tweeting their thoughts about Jesus, but no one really seems to know him for who he really is. But before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he has an interesting conversation with his brothers. So let's start there in verses 1 through 10. I think verses 1 through 10 kind of set the stage for the chapter and give us a glimpse into the fact that no one really understands who he is. So here in these first 10 verses, we start with these conversations, like you mentioned, with his brothers. And his brothers are telling him as the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tents or Shelters, as some different versions talk about it, is approaching. And the men would all be expected to go to Jerusalem to participate in this feast. They say, hey, Jesus, why don't you go on to this feast? And the tone of it, we might summarize this to say it's almost like they're saying, go up so you can increase your following. His brothers are like, you seem to think you're a big deal, and so why don't you go up to there? That's where you're really going to draw attention and make some disciples. But as they say that, we think that this is going to be more of a mocking tone or a sarcastic tone based on what it says in verse 5. It says, not even his brothers believed in him. But Jesus mentions something to the effect of, my time has not yet come. We've mentioned that before, of this idea of Jesus' time for his crucifixion and then his resurrection. So he's not really looking to be in big public eye situations quite yet in the way that that would get him into this trouble. If you think about their advice in connection with chapter 6 and what happened, you know, at the end of chapter 6, Jesus lost the majority of his following. And so it's kind of like a crisis for Jesus from a public relations standpoint. And his brothers are like, well, here's here's an opportunity for you to fix that. If you really want followers... Go up to the feast, make yourself known, because you'll probably get some down there. And so they're giving him public relations advice. (laughs) But from Jesus' standpoint, that's not really what he's after. He's not after a big following. He's after real faith. And as we've seen, that often doesn't come with like a popular following. Right. And Jesus is definitely not popular right now. And the fact that not only would Jesus go up and people might boo him, but as it says in verse 1, The Jews are looking to kill him right now. Mm -hmm. We'll bring up that point again later on in the chapter. And so it could even be, depending on how you read this, that his brothers are kind of like, why aren't you going up there? And maybe they're even knowing that they're trying to send him to a place that they might get him killed. Jesus talks about the fact that the world hates him because he's testifying about it and the works that they do are evil. Maybe we've seen some of that in chapter 6 as large groups of people leave Jesus. And so really to, to summarize for the moment, Jesus tells his brothers, you know, my time's not here yet. You just go on and go. I'm going to hang out here in Galilee. And so his brothers take off and go to the feast. So he sends off his brothers. It says in verse 9, he stays in Galilee. 
And then weirdly in verse 10, it talks about, hey, he goes to the festival. And it's like, wait, I thought you were all about, I'm not going to go. <laughs> Although he says, he, it talks about how he doesn't go openly. He's going secretly. Mm -hmm. Jesus is in kind of stealth, incognito mode right now. And that's not because Jesus is afraid. I don't think it's that. I think it's more of the fact that his time is not yet here for him to be taken and to be crucified. That time will come when he will go to Jerusalem knowing that it's going to be that he's going to get arrested and then killed there. But he does go to the feast. He's, well, we might kind of get the, the thought of sneaking around. I don't think he's necessarily like hiding in shadows or things like that. But this is obviously a time that people are expecting something to happen. In verse 11, the Jews are looking for him. They're saying, where is he? And this just prompts into a whole list throughout this chapter of what people are saying about Jesus. There's all types of kind of secret discussions. You kind of get this picture of people huddled around together. You get people who are saying, you know, could this really be Jesus? You know, I, I think it could be the Messiah, but there are some things I know from the law that I'm not sure it connects with the Messiah. So what are the people saying about Jesus in this chapter? So we compiled kind of a list of, of a sampling of what the people were saying about him. Because you're right, the people are all over the map about Jesus. In verse 12, some are saying he's a good man. Some are saying that he's leading people astray. So we've got two extremes. He's a good man doing good things. Other people saying he's, he's trying to lead people astray, deceiving people. In verse 15, when Jesus does eventually go up and start teaching openly in the temple, the Jews are astonished, and they say, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? He doesn't have a PhD in a rabbinical school or anything, so where did he get all this wisdom? In verse 20, he's accused of having a demon. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, who, who are you saying is seeking to kill you? Which is interesting because it seems like they, everyone recognized that this man was kind of wanted, that Jesus was wanted. And then just before that statement, Jesus mentions why are you looking to kill me, or why are you trying to kill me? Again, it's like he knows from chapter 7, verse 1, that people are looking to kill him, and they're like, who's trying to kill you? And you just got to think Jesus wanted to be like, you, you're trying to kill me. And we've even seen that in chapter 6, right? In chapter, or I think chapter 5, when they said, you know, mm -hmm. he was being blasphemous, calling God his father, and so they sought to kill him. And so that's always a funny statement to me there in verse 20. Who's trying to kill you? And it's like, well, you guys are. But that's just kind of weirdly ironic that that's what yes. they're saying right now. You have a lot of that in this chapter, it seems, this irony of, you know, people don't really recognize what's, what's in their hearts about Jesus. And, and in verses 25 and 27, to further make that point, the people of Jerusalem are saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? And so they recognize that Jesus is wanted, and, and yet they're not doing anything about it. The authorities are not able to arrest him. Later on, it says that the Jews sent officers to arrest him, but they, weren't, they were unable to take him. In verse 31, it says, Many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? And so you have some people who are kind of on the right track, you know, if if the Messiah is coming, is he going to do more signs? Who, who else would Jesus be? Right. Verses 40 and 41, some say that he's the prophet, others saying he's the Christ. And there, even beyond verse 41 and verse 42, and they're talking about, you know, isn't the Messiah supposed to come from the city of David? And that's weird because in verse 27, they're saying, 
we don't know where the Messiah is supposed to come from. And and so even Jews who should have a knowledge of the scriptures are kind of all over, they like have some of the knowledge, but they're miss that information that Jesus actually fulfills that, or they're, you know, not seeing the whole picture. It's just interesting to see how there's there's so much confusion among the people. And it seems like they're even confused about the scriptures themselves about the Messiah. Yeah, and what that's that's really interesting because it seems like you've got all of these different opinions, and when you put them together, they don't mesh with each other. It's just confusion after confusion. So there's really no clarity here in people's thinking. Everything's just kind of confused. But I really love what the officers say in verse 46. The officers came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? We sent you to arrest him. We gave you one job to bring Jesus to us, and you failed in that. Why? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. No one teaches like Jesus. Mm-hmm. We can tell just from listening to him, seeing him, and observing the works that he does, that there's something unique about Jesus. For, for all of the opinions about Jesus that are here, you never see anyone just kind of like, oh, Jesus, no big deal, right? <laughs> it's, it's everybody has an opinion, either good or bad, and you either, either love him or hate him. And the, the officers kind of hit on that. They recognize there's something unique about Jesus. So as, as you look at what the people are saying about him, what kind of stands out to you about all of that? Man, there's so much that's, and maybe as you continue to to dwell on that, and even just listening to you talking about how, you know, there, there's no one's ever spoken like Jesus, but that really seems to clash with things they said earlier about in verse 15. How's he even educated though? Like, how could he possibly know all of this? How could he possibly speak so well if he hasn't gone to any of the schools that we would have expected a good teacher to come from? Or even, you know, like you mentioned, there's the, the good, the bad. Some people seem kind of neutral, but you know, even within that neutral, there's maybe a little bit of leaning towards Jesus, a little bit of leaning away from Jesus. And so there really is just an amazing chapter to see how John is kind of putting some great focus here upon the crowd and giving us some development of their thought and their thinking of, okay, how, how are people viewing Jesus? And this is a very appropriate scene to do that at this real festival that people would be gathered together and as Jesus has been you know really making a stir with not just you know the healings and the teachings but also the signs that he's done for people to say hey here we're all together have you heard about Jesus can we talk about Jesus what are you thinking about Jesus and it it really just does seem like the perfect setting for this all to happen and for John to give us all this information so what are you noticing about what people are saying or things that are standing out to you from this section? Yeah, a couple things. One is that you don't really see any real commitment on anyone's part. Everyone's got an opinion, a thought about who Jesus is or who he might be, but you don't ever see anyone really committed to him. You do see in verse 31 that some of the crowd believes in him, but I think in the context of what we've already seen in John, that belief can take on many levels. You can have a very shallow, superficial faith, like we saw in chapter 6, when the crowds were coming back to Jesus after he fed them. They believed in him, in a sense, but only so far as, like, Jesus was going to feed them. 
And I think that's something similar here. You've, you've got an undeveloped faith. You don't have anyone who has the committed faith of Peter, for instance, back in chapter 6. When everybody's walking away from Jesus and Simon Peter says, who else are we going to go to? You've got words of eternal life. Another thing that I notice kind of upon that is that I think what John is doing is asking us as the reader, what do you think about Jesus? Mm-hmm. We didn't really talk about this last time, but John chapter 6, when Jesus asks his disciples, you don't want to go away also, do you? That's kind of parallel to what the other Gospels have when Peter makes his great confession. Who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am, right? right. That's kind mm-hmm. of the same moment in time. Yeah. And John doesn't record those words, who do you say that I am? But John is recording words that will basically boil down to the same question. Yeah. Who do you as the reader say I am? And so are you... We've got evidence here about who Jesus is. We've got all these opinions. Where do you fall in line? You know, what, what's your thought about Jesus? So it's just really interesting to see what these people are, are saying about him. Yeah. What do we say about him? Right. As John develops the crowd, John is trying to develop us and push us to yes. think about ourselves as well. And while the crowds are, you know, very interesting, I mean, that would be something that even you as our listener could maybe take some time to do with John 7 as you're studying, go back and maybe write out all of those statements in a notebook, leave some space to kind of put those in your own phrase or kind of even some of the surrounding context of that. It's great to see what the crowds are saying, but more importantly, Jesus is also speaking throughout this chapter. So there are some things that Jesus is talking about. Some of them are things we've seen before. So the teaching that Jesus has, you know, they ask, where does Jesus get this education? How is he able to teach like this? In verse 15, Jesus responds with this statement of the fact that I'm teaching what my father told me to teach. Something we've seen, I think, since at least chapter 3 is this idea that Jesus isn't just going around making up things or saying whatever he wants to say. He's doing the Father's will. On a, In a sense and in a way, it seems like that is obviously really shaking things up that no one has ever done God's will like this. For no one has seems to have shown this level of commitment or desire to fulfill God's will in this way. So that's one thing we're seeing Jesus talk about again, is how it's not mine, but it's my Father's teaching. Another thing we see Jesus saying in response to their unbelief, verses 19 through 24, he says, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? What Jesus is talking about there is you're trying to kill me because of what I did back in chapter 5, when Jesus healed the, the lame man on the Sabbath day. And he points out, look, according to the law, in order to be consistent with the law, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath day. If, if you know, the eighth day of the child's birth comes after that. But what about me? I make an entire man well on the Sabbath day, and you, you're rejecting me. Um, I helped a man. And so he says, verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so Jesus is, you know, hitting on their hypocritical unbelief in him. Look, if you really want to follow Moses, you'd recognize who I am because Moses points to me. So that's another thing that Jesus is talking about in response to their unbelief. Then we want to jump down to verse 37 through 39. I want to start off by reading these verses. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39 from the Christian Standard Bible. On the last and most important day of the festival, John gives us a setting here for that, says, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, with this being a program that's supposed to encourage us and help us with Bible study, Emerson and I talked about in our preparation for this how these verses talk about the Spirit there in verse 39. Or at least we can say that John applies what Jesus says about the Spirit. And so mm-hmm. we can sometimes swing in one of two directions. I'm going to be doing hand motions you may not be able to see right now, but Emerson and I can see them. We've talked about this. One direction we can swing in is we go to the realm of the Spirit is going to you know, act and, and dwell in me in a way that's going to empower me and override the written Word of God and that you know, it's either going to be in conjunction or even a better revelation than what we have in the written Word. The other side we can go with this as far as Bible study is say, well, that says the Spirit, and I just kind of move on and don't acknowledge verse 30. I just kind of focus on what did the crowd say, and I think about all those things. And that's you know important stuff, or that's relevant stuff to consider. But when it comes to studying God's Word, we have to find these passages, or we not have to find them, we see these passages, and we need to encounter them, and we need to maybe wrestle with them, or at least consider them, and what's going on here. So before we even get to all the spirit stuff, let's see what Jesus has said once again. He talks about, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is very similar to what we see Jesus saying to the woman in the well in John chapter 4 and verse 10. And he does this again on the very last and most important day of the festival. And so Emerson had brought up you know, a remembrance that he had about something that's going on during the festival of tents or booths or whatever you want to call it, something they would do on this last day. And I found a neat note about that as well in the complete Jewish study Bible. And I didn't really have enough memory space in my own brain, apparently, to kind of summarize on my own. So I've got that note with me. <laughs> I want you to listen to a man who gives an illustration about this is what would be happening on the last day of the Feast of Booze, and this is how Jesus is really taking that moment, taking that spotlight, and really waited until that last day to really make that declaration. And so it says, The Talmud tells of a custom that developed in the Second Temple period. At the time during this holy day, the priest would take a water pitcher down to the pool of Shechem, or Salome, dip it in the water, and carry it back to the temple. Crowds of the people would then form a huge processional behind the priest, dancing and singing and chanting the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, as they entered the Temple Mount. For each of the six days of the festival, the processional would circle the temple altar one time, and on the seventh day, there would be seven processionals to magnify the joy. The highlight of the ceremony came when the priest dramatically poured the water on the altar of the temple. The response of the multitudes was so immense that the Talmud says whoever had not been in Jerusalem of the ceremony had not experienced real joy, as he became known as rejoicing of the house of drawing water. Why all the rejoicing at this water-pouring ceremony? Obviously it had to be more than the rejoicing in the hope of the future water rains for Israel, as important as that might be. The rabbis speak of deeper truths from Isaiah 12, thir- from Isaiah 12 and verse 3 in regard to the ceremony. Then you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. Salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua, the name of the Messiah. More than the outpouring of the temporal water in Israel, the rejoicing of the house of drawing water was to prophetically illustrate the days of the messianic redemption, 
when the water of the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all Israel. God will ultimately build his habitation when the people, when the kingdom is established under Messiah's rule. So we go down later in this quote, and it says, Imagine this setting. This feast is in full swing, and the joy of the first six days was exuberant. And on the great final day, the crowds are filled with expectation for the Messiah and the Holy Spirit that he would bring. And at that very time of the water-drawing ceremony, Jesus made a bold proclamation. Do you truly want living waters of the Holy Spirit? Does anyone understand the true significance of this ceremony? If anyone desires what the scriptures symbolize, let him believe in me. I am the Messiah who will pour out the Holy Spirit on Israel. So that's a long quotation from, from all that in there, but I think it very well states kind of the significance that we can see of the setting. I mean, we noticed in the reading, um, this happens on the last and most important day, but maybe if I don't know a whole lot about the Festival of Weeks, I may miss the connection between that water-pouring ceremony and when Jesus gets up and says something about water on that day. Yeah, I love how that just brings out what Jesus is saying. Jesus is using something, you know, a, a tradition, an action that they would have seen every year at the temple, and he's using that to say, look at who I am. You know, you do this every year, but if you really want living water, you look at me. And I liked how that quotation also brought out some Old Testament passages like Isaiah 12, verse 2. There's a lot of other passages in the prophets especially that talk about the day of the Messiah coming and it being like water being poured out. Ezekiel chapter 47 is one of those passages that's where at the end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel kind of gets this virtual uh, tour of the, the new temple. And in, 40, in chapter 47, he sees a little trickle of water coming down from the temple, coming down from the altar. And as he goes further and further away from the altar, that trickle becomes a stream, becomes a creek, becomes a, a river that he can't even wade. And, you know, God is, is highlighting that, that his salvation will be like water poured out on all mankind. Anyone who is willing to come, he can come and drink of that. And Jesus is being really clear about who he is. And we talked about how the crowds are kind of confused about who Jesus is. Some of them don't even recognize Jesus is actually from Bethlehem in fulfillment of scripture. Jesus is being very clear here. Uh, he, he is clearly calling himself the Christ, the Messiah. And verse 39 you mentioned this is John's like explanation of that. John is really helpful here mm -hmm. because John just tells us this is this is what he's talking. He's talking about the Spirit. And Joel chapter 2 is another passage that comes to mind. Acts chapter 2, Peter's going to quote from Joel 2, of course, and talk about how that the salvation of God is poured out like, like water. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So John doesn't really go into detail about what exactly he's talking, what, you know, what, what side of the Spirit or what exactly he's talking about, but John is just revealing the Spirit little by little, and we have to look at other passages in the New Testament that unpack that to help us understand what he's talking about. Um, he's, he's not talking about speaking in tongues. He's not talking about being led by the Spirit in a miraculous way, and he's also clearly not saying that the Spirit is dead. Right. That he's only talking about the the writing of the New Testament. Obviously, the Spirit was involved in that, but I think he's talking more about the salvation that the Spirit would make accessible, right? And that He would dwell in us, 
not in an overpowering way, but in a relational way, as we see Paul describing in some of his letters. And that really seems to be the big point on this big, important day that they're focusing and celebrating the coming salvation that the Messiah will bring. Jesus says, I'm that guy. As they're, you know, I don't know if he said this at the same time they're pouring the water on the altar or not, but as they're thinking about that, he's talking about water and saying that, I mean, like I said, he's being very clear about this here. And so this is where people are starting to say things in verse 40, like, this is the prophet, or this is the Messiah. There's still some questions about all of that too, but what a powerful statement that maybe these three verses we might skip over because we're like, I don't get that. But trying mm-hmm. to do some of that interpretation and seeing how is Jesus connecting this to the festival itself has been really helpful to see all of that. So as we focus on this end of the chapter, we see the servants of the chief priests and the Pharisees come, and like you mentioned, they're asking, why didn't you bring Jesus? And the the guards come and they say, you know, there's nobody ever like this who spoke. And we're seeing a return of a familiar face in Nicodemus here. You know, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they're real upset at the guards. They're, they're trying to find a way to arrest Jesus. So again, ultimately, they want to kill him, whether they've tried to say, oh, that's not our goal while they've got their fingers crossed behind their backs or whatever. They're very intentional about the fact that we want to kill you. But here's Nicodemus again. And what's Nicodemus all about? What are we seeing Nicodemus? Remember Nicodemus from chapter three, who comes to Jesus in the night. What's Nicodemus say to these guys? Yeah. So Nicodemus, remember, is one of the Pharisees. So the question that the Pharisees ask, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? And so Nicodemus stands up and indicates, well, let's take a step back. And he says in verse 51, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So he's basically saying, if we want to keep the law faithfully, then we're going to have to not condemn an innocent man. Nicodemus seems like he is identifying himself on Jesus' side. You know, he's kind of standing against his peers here, which would be really remarkable for him to do. He's got a lot to lose, and he's identifying himself as one who is at least willing to say, we need to give Jesus the legal benefit of the doubt and hear what he has to say. And so it seems like there's a little bit of growing faith in Nicodemus. What started out as kind of mere curiosity in chapter 3 comes to a point. I imagine that conversation that Jesus had with him in chapter 3 really impacted him. And as he's mm-hmm. thought about that over the span of time, now he's he's kind of taking a stand for Jesus. It's not it's not a real strong stand. Like he doesn't stand up and say, "Yeah, I believe in Jesus." Right. But he's headed that direction, and he's going to appear one more time in the gospel, of course, in chapter nineteen. So I I love Nicodemus' his character, just seeing his his growth of faith. Absolutely, yeah. And even though everybody else on Nicodemus's team with the Pharisees are like. Hey, are you want to be one of the disciples? Why don't you go follow Jesus? Then, kind of, they really are disrespectful. Yeah. Are, you aren't from Galilee, too, are you? And based on some other things we've seen about Galilee, you know, isn't it? Um, is it Philip or somebody in chapter one says something like, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth or Galilee?" Yeah, I think that was Nathaniel. Yeah, Nathaniel. So people have kind of an interesting view about Galilee. You know, they're like, oh, if you're a Galilean, then go be a Galilean with Jesus. <laughs> but Nicodemus is still going to hold on, and we'll see him at least one more time and continue to see that faith growing. 
So that leads us to our so what for this chapter. What's the big so what point that we need to take from this? Verse 17, Jesus says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. We wanted to focus on that as the so what for for today. It's easy for us to get caught up in what others are saying about Jesus and let our faith be swayed by popular opinion. But we have to make up our own minds about who Jesus is, not based upon what other people say, but based upon what we see Jesus saying and doing. And in order to know if Jesus' teaching is true or not, it begins with a willingness to do the Father's will. It begins with our hearts being humble and being submissive and saying to the Father, I want to do your will. And so when we see God's will, we act upon that. And so somewhat related to that is our challenge from verse 31. We want you to to try to make a case for Jesus being the Messiah. In verse 31, the people are saying, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than the man here has done, will he? I kind of misread some of that, but that's the main idea of that verse, is this idea of who else could Jesus be? All the th- these five signs he's done so far, the teachings he's doing, who else could Jesus be? And so this is a challenge for you to maybe think about not just John 7, but think about everything John's presented so far in the first seven chapters and write down and maybe think about, you know, get out your yellow legal pad and, and say, who else could this be? And write out the reasons why Jesus is the Messiah, is the one, as John talks about in John 20, 30, and 31, who we need to believe it really is the Son of God, so that we would believe in him and have eternal life in his name. Thank you for listening to Working with the Word today. Next week, we'll be in John chapter 8. We'll start off by looking at an interesting section in the beginning about what that is or where that belongs in our Bibles, a story where Jesus is speaking to a woman who's caught in adultery. We'll talk more about some of these great I am statements that Jesus makes. For example, when Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world, and what the implications are of that. We'll continue to look at other things in chapter 8 as well. We encourage you to keep reading, keep studying with us. We hope that this is building your faith and helping you to, to grow and appreciate Jesus as the Son of God. If you are enjoying the program, we ask that you would continue to share it with others who would maybe find some benefit from it as well, or you can leave a rate or review on your podcast platform that you listen with. And remember, if you have any difficult passages or books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes or Bible questions of any kind, you can always reach out to us on Facebook at Working With The Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word working with the word podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.